I want to say a word to the children first. Uh, I'm not quite sure it's a children's sermon, but just an explanation. Um, I was asked to basically tell you who I am, which could take a long time. But fundamentally, this morning, I'm a bishop. And that word comes from a word to oversee, in other words, to be looking over things. And it's the kind of thing a shepherd does when he's watching his sheep. He's looking over them, checking them out, making sure they're okay. That's what a bishop does, is to take a look, not just at one congregation, but lots of congregations, and see what the Lord is doing or wants to do among them. So my job is to keep an eye on things uh, as much as possible. Uh, and one of the symbols of being a bishop uh, who is really just a, a shepherd under the great shepherd, who's Jesus. One of the symbols is something you can call a crozier or a bishop's staff. It's to remind you of what a shepherd carries. He carries a long stick with a big hook at the end. This is just a little hook. Theo helped me put this together this morning. Uh, and he, he will tell you, this is heavy. Uh, but in a long wooden hook, you know what you use it for? If a sheep is going in the wrong direction, you pull, put it around his neck and you pull, okay? And that happens to us sometimes when we're uh, following Jesus, that we start heading in the wrong direction and then we can feel him pulling us, pushing us, getting us back to where we need to be. So when you think about Jesus, one, sometimes when you're loving Jesus or walking with Jesus, uh, and then you get a little bit off track, and then you're really heading to trouble, something will happen, and he will pull you back. You can resist it, and that will hurt more. But he's determined to watch over his sheep. So when you think of a bishop, I'm just keeping an eye on congregations. Jesus is keeping an eye on all of us. And it is a joy to be here this morning with, with you all. Thank you. Oh, man, is this, is this on? Yep. Um, so, children, this is a good time for you to um, head out to um, uh, the playground. I think the, it's too wet for the playground, so we're in the fellowship hall, yeah. And you're welcome to go through this front door here, um, which will take you all the way there without getting wet. Um, let me pray for you as you depart. Father, we bless your name for the gift of these children, and we consider it a sacred charge, and we um, ask, Lord, that you would make us as parents and as Christian leaders faithful in teaching them the way that they should go. And please bless them, pour out blessing on their lives, that they would grow up to be mighty men and women of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a tremendous joy to be with all of you this morning. Um, it's always strange in this pandemic season to look out at a group of people wearing masks. I said to one congregation, it reminds me of what it must feel like to be part of a bank robbery. <laughs> but the Lord has brought us together, and that is a great privilege. Uh, I'm excited for those being confirmed today as they are really confirming promises they made. And then we're praying for the Holy Spirit to be on them, re refilling them uh, so that they may be further empowered for serving God and his kingdom. And in one sense, this word is 
for all of us, but in another sense, I want those being confirmed today really hear it as a word to you, something to carry out of this service and, and remember of, of God's call to you. Marsha and I have taken many trips to Israel, and one of the fun things has been to take children with us. But sometimes you get to a site where the guide is giving a long explanation, and you have to think of a way to get the children distracted so they don't get bored. And it, particularly if it's an older archaeological site, we, one of us or one of the other leaders will take the kids on sort of a uh, treasure hunt, and we tell them to look for something very small as a rule, pieces of pottery called shards. So they go out and they each find one. They're easy to find. If you, in most of the sites, there's pieces of pottery everywhere. One of the things that we don't experience, we've got plastic and, and metal and all these things that make our containers, but we don't experience a culture of pottery. Uh, that is, for the biblical times, much uh, more than it is for now. Potters were well known. Every, every container you, you had for food was made out of pottery in almost every case. Occasionally stone or occasionally uh, wood, but rarely. Mostly pottery. And the potters would have been well known in the community. In fact, one of the primary ways to date an archaeological site was by the type of pottery that you would find at various levels as you dug down. Marsha and I had a place that we like to go when we've been on summer vacation in a place where my folks used to have a home. Uh, and on that island, there's a potter uh, named David Kaufman. And, I, and we would go and watch him work. Uh, it, hopefully, we'd find him working, because it's always fascinating. Uh, it was best when he would throw a lump of clay on the wheel and start to fashion it, and you have no idea what he's going to make. Have you ever had that experience? It's, a, it's fascinating. I mean, sometimes they say, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make that, and that. You still can't believe that they can turn that lump of clay into a particular item. But when they just start with no explanation, that's even more fun. The skill they have to take one lump and make it into a mug, another one to, to be a plate, another one to be a, a vase, uh, vase. Uh, that's th th these are pottery items from that one potter. Uh, all sorts of things in that, plates and, and vases, uh, plates, things to put uh, plants in. Uh, the creativity of the potter. Something almost magical takes place as when you watch them forming uh, these various articles. Once you've watched the potter form something, you realize it's really his, or it's really hers. It was his materials, his skill, his time, and most of all, his forming. It's completely his, unless he decides to tell, sell, sell it to someone else. Well, if you go through the scriptures, you discover language about the Lord being a potter, a former. It's throughout the scripture. Scriptures, Psalm 95, 5, the sea is his for he made it and his hands formed, it's the same word for molding, for a potter, formed the dry land. What an image. God hand making creation. 
instantly that image of a potter communicates that God is the creator of all things, the artist behind all things, and the owner of all things. All in that one image of being a potter. Now the problem we have in our culture is that we are told over and over again, in a sense, that we are our own makers, our own potters. We are making our own destinies, creating our own futures, following our own dreams. And if there is a God, we get to decide what he should be like. And the temptation is if he doesn't agree with us, even when we come to the scripture and we come across something that we don't particularly like, we get to believe he doesn't know what he's doing. Now that temptation is not new. It's been there from the very beginning. But Isaiah speaks out against this view using the image of a potter in clay. Listen to this from Isaiah 29. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed of him, the, the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. The primary way of thinking for the fallen human heart is that I am in charge. What's been interesting in the pandemic is that I think our culture has been shaken up because if the pandemic teaches us anything, we learned we are not in charge. It also reminds us that we're mortal, given the tragic deaths of so many. Those shaking, we're not in charge, and we are mortal, should be pointing us to the potter. Well, Paul picks up this pottery analogy in our Romans passage today. Last week, my son Peter preached on this verse and the verses around it. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's verse 18 of Romans 9. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans 9. We're going to be looking at some of today. Peter promised that I was going to solve all the problems of, the of this passage. We do not have time, and I do not, uh, I'm still working on some of the answers there, but I'm going to share with you the things I've seen that I hope will be helpful. It's difficult to be thinking about God having a purpose for each one of us. And Paul says some for, for noble use or ignoble use, honorable use, dishonor. If, if God's that kind of God, then what, what responsibility do we have? And Paul anticipates that response to his teaching. So look at Romans 9.19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if God controls everyone's response to him, how can he blame us? We have no choice. And if anyone is at fault, it's God. He's unfair and unjust. That's the, that's the gist of that uh, question. Why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? Well, Paul has almost certainly heard this question before in his ministry. But watch what he does. Rather than trying to explain the mystery of God's will interacting with our wills, he basically says that the question itself is insubordinate. 
Look at his response in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molder say to its what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God, Paul is reminding us that we are the ones created, that God is the creator. And like Isaiah, he points out how ludicrous a situation it is for the clay to be speaking back to the potter. But how often we do that in our lives? How often we blame God when things go wrong in our lives? And that takes us totally off track with walking with God. We can become cynical. We can become disillusioned. We can become fearful. How do we move out of that dark place? I'm not going to give you five easy steps for cheering up. <laughs> but I want to show some elements that can help us get back on track in those dark moments when we think that God has failed us or God is out of control. It begins with understanding that we've been called by God. He not only molded us in the womb, but he molded the circumstances of our lives so that we'd be prepared to hear the gospel, and then he brought the gospel to us. That's all God's doing. The passage tells us that in order to save us, he has patiently put up with human rebellion, which deserves his righteous anger, his wrath. Why does he put up with the fact that we've turned against him? Why does he put up with those who are determined to be self-destructive on a spiritual level? Well, it says in verse 23, he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy. In other words, a vessel that receives mercy. Something has mercy pulled, poured into it. Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Did you get that? He's going to be showing his glory by giving his mercy into people that he's handmade ahead of time. Who are those people? Paul says in verse 24, even us. We are vessels of glory if we've come to Christ. We are vessels that God has poured his mercy and kindness into. Even us, that sense of wonder, whom he has called, not from the Jews only. He's been walking through Romans, the relationship between Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus. But here he's saying all believers, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the non-Jews, from the Gentiles. Paul wants us to not only see how wonderful, majestic, and glorious God is, he wants us to see God's plan to share his glory with us. We have been prepared for glory. Some of you may remember the story written by Mark Twain called The Prince and the Pauper, Prince and the Poor Man. Two boys, uh, probably uh, preteens or just teens, run into each other. One is a prince, the son of the king of England, Prince Edward, the later King Edward VI. 
and then a poor boy named Tom. And as they run into each other, they discover that they look a great deal like one another, and they decide that they're going to change places, that the king is going to go into the poverty experience because he just feels like, I don't know really what's going on in my kingdom. Let me be you. And then this poor boy named Tom is elevated to be the prince. Edward discovers what a miserable life Tom has in his family as in being poor. Tom, on the other hand, discovers the glory of being a king or a prince of the son of a king. Now, I share that story with you because it's a vivid image in a sense of what's going on in terms of Jesus coming for us. He who had everything gave it up to be poor so that we could be rich. It's interesting, at the end of The Prince and the Pauper, uh, when the boys finally identify themselves and finally people believe them, uh, most of the story is about how no one believes what they're saying. I'm really the king, I'm really the prince, or I'm really just a poor, no, no, no. Um, but finally they get together, it gets cleared up, but then Tom is made an earl. He doesn't go back to poverty. God is forming us for glory. Think of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's what Paul is getting at here, that we're vessels of mercy, filled with the mercy of God and aimed for glory. Later on in the beginning of chapter 10, Paul explains that people miss the gospel because they think they have to justify themselves. He points out that we cannot be good enough to be righteous before God. It's the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10. Vessels of mercy. Verse 23, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. Preparing us for his mercy, preparing us for glory, is something the Lord has done and is doing in our lives. There's a customized molding process for each of us. We have different callings, but they're all callings out of poverty into the riches of his grace. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of, were of noble birth. In other words, he said, you didn't have anything to bring to the table. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in other words, that have no recognition at all, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. God is forming us and making us vessels of mercy. And I love that phrase. Go back and consider your calling. Consider how the Lord called you into his kingdom. We need to review our own histories. Let me just share a moment of the Lord's calling with me. Peter told the story of our family life together during a rough season and how God molded that situation to uh, bring glory to himself. I'll go further back as to how the Lord called me. I was a nerdy kid. 
That's being polite. <laughs> Silly, still can be. And despite I, the fact that I grew up in the church, I never really got the gospel. But here are the dominoes that the Lord lined up in my life. My father had gone to boarding school for a year, and he asked me if I'd like to do that for high school. And I realized that I needed a disciplined environment. I was also sick of fighting with my younger brothers all the time. <laughs> I considered several schools and end up, ended up at a school called the Loomis School. Very good school, but not actually as famous or uh, probably quite as good as two of the schools I turned down. They accepted me, but I chose this particular school for reasons I don't entirely remember. When I got there, they had a spiritually boring chapel, a chaplain. I won't describe him more than that, to, except to say he was primarily the football coach, and he wasn't even that good as a football coach. <laughs> as a result, I remember sitting in chapel, listening to this uh, chaplain, and praying a weird prayer. I simply said to the Lord, Lord, if you're there, because I was an agnostic, Lord, if you're there, You've got to do better than this. <laughs> OK, it wasn't a particularly spiritual prayer. I admit it. But the last year I was at that school, God brought a new chaplain and his wife. God led them to my school. And they saw themselves as missionaries to my very secular environment. Not only did God bring them to the school so that I could hear the gospel preached, he put them at the end of my hall, the end of my corridor. So they were my dorm masters as well. I was interacting with them all the time. And they really poured out their lives. Paul says, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. And that's what they did. They shared their own lives too. When my grandmother died over Christmas break, I sought them out on my return. And I said, what do Christians believe about life after death? And they pointed me to the resurrection of Jesus and challenged me to pray that God would prove himself to me. And the Lord did so in a remarkable way. Another circumstance, a circumstance way beyond my control, but under the Lord's control. And I surrendered my life to him. There's so much more I could say. But I want you to consider your calling. Looking back, do you recognize that God put people in your path so that you would hear the gospel? Do you recognize that he prepared your heart to hear it, maybe by disappointment or illness or confusion or failure? But God was working, he was molding, he was handcrafting you. Consider your calling, how God called you, the way the Lord brought the gospel to you. Remember God's mercy to you as demonstrated on the cross. Remember that God as the potter owns you and has purposes for you. He knows how he will use you as a vessel of mercy and glory. We're not people living out our own dreams if we follow Jesus. We are people called to be seeking God's kingdom in our lives. We have an illusion that we own our own time. We own our own money. We own our own bodies. We can do anything with them that we want. But no, that's not true. We were handmade for a purpose to demonstrate God's glory. 
Not just because God made us as the potter, but also because Jesus paid a ransom for us on the cross. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's a great word into this culture that thinks we can do whatever we want with our bodies. We don't have that freedom if we're servants of Jesus. So consider your calling. Now, some of you are in the midst of being called. You've not yet surrendered your life to Christ. But the Lord's hands are on you. He's shaping you. Maybe you still feel like you want to hold on to control of your own life. You have areas where you think what you want is better than what God wants for you. But I have to tell you, according to what Paul says here, compared to the riches that we can have, you're comparing fake jewels to the glorious riches of his treasures, of his grace. So that's the first thing I want you to take home. Consider your calling. Look back at what God has done to bring you to where you are. Secondly, see the people around you as people in the process of being molded. Pray for them as Paul did for his fellow Jewish people. He says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul looks around him and he hasn't given up on his fellow Jews, many of who do, do become believers in Jesus. That's a heart of what he's saying throughout this passage. He believes that God can change anyone. So for whom are you praying? Don't write anyone off. If Paul who persecuted the church could be saved, if I and my nerdiness and self-centeredness could be saved, if you and all your failures and sin could be saved, don't assume that the people around you can't be saved. Now Paul makes it clear in Romans 9 that not everyone will be saved, but that shouldn't stop us from praying for everyone. He also makes clear here and elsewhere that the Lord is the potter preparing many unlikely people to be saved. And he expects us to pray for everyone. So those are the take-homes. Consider your calling. Remember how you got to where you are in the gospel. You're not fin fully formed yet. God is still forming. And remember to pray and share the gospel with those around you because the Lord can work in anyone having worked in us.